Everybody watching my live stream, I would encourage you to share the stream. We're going to be given the gospel today. We're doing John, and we're in the most, probably the, one of the most epic parts of the Bible. There are epic chapters in the Bible, and without a doubt, the most epic chapter in all of the New Testament is John chapter 3. It's the gospel in a nutshell. And so if you have unsaved people, you have unsaved friends in your social network, this would be definitely a message to uh, give them. So we want to encourage you to do that. So we're in John chapter 3. I'm going to read it for you, 10 verses, and then we're going to break it down. Uh, Jesus answered to him, and I'll, I'll come back to who he's talking to here in a second. He says, are you a teacher of Israel? And you do not know these things. Jesus is talking to a religious leader named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was an Old Testament master. Nicodemus was one of the most highly educated men in the nation at that time. Give you a little background on this nation, the nation of Israel. They were not known. So Egyptians were known for math. I don't know if you know that. So were the Greeks, mathematics, philosophy, that type of cultural development. Israel was no such nation. They were a nation devoted to one purpose and one purpose alone, and it was the word of God. And so these were, this, this society didn't, didn't matter if you did calculus. They weren't concerned about your math grades or your English grades or your reading comprehension or anything like that. They're, the way they measured success in that culture, especially with children, was their proficiency in the scripture. And so what would happen is they would raise these children in the scripture from the time that they would be able to talk, they would start teaching them, and they would have these assessments as they grew. And the most proficient learners got to go forward, got to move up. If you didn't and you couldn't pass the proficiency test, well, you got to be a fisherman, you know, like Peter and um, John and things like that. But even Peter and John, if you look at what they knew about the scripture, and how they knew it, you could tell these guys, these guys were no yo's. They knew their word of God. They knew their Bible because they were educated in it from the time they were very, very young. Nicodemus is a guy who passed all the tests. This guy's at the height of everything. He's, he's, he has it all. He has status. He has money. He has position. And he's an Old Testament master. He's the, one of the highest teachers in the land. And he comes to Jesus by night, and he calls Jesus rabbi, you know? He says, Rabbi, which is to say, teacher, my teacher. Nicodemus had come across someone who was actually smarter than him. And what drew Nicodemus to Jesus was the miracles. Jesus is at Passover, right? So we follow him to Passover. He's doing miracles. And as he's doing miracles, Nicodemus is watching Jesus perform these miracles. And he says, wow. And he goes and finds Jesus by night. Why do you think he went at night? Anybody? Huh? He didn't want anybody to know, right? And so they give the guy a bad time. They're like, well, Nicodemus came at night. You know when I always tell people? I'm like, yeah, that's true, but at least he came. Yeah. Do you know how many people don't come to Jesus? You know, at least he came. And so he comes to Jesus by night, and he says, we know you're a teacher that's come from God, for no one can do what you do. And Jesus flips the script and says, you must be born again. You know, and then he begins to talk to him through this whole chapter, and he begins to unpack and literally wreck Nicodemus's world. All of the things that Nicodemus thought were true, Jesus said, means nothing. All of the things that Nicodemus had placed value in, Jesus told them amounts to zero. They had built a system, and I'm going to get into that a little bit. And so here's what's happening is Jesus is explaining to him that he must be born again, right? He said, you must be born again, and Nicodemus doesn't get it. It's like, what do you mean you must be born again? Am I able to climb back in my mother's womb and be born again? He said, no, you must be born of water and spirit. And then he asked him this, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? This, I'm, I'm telling you, this is, an, this is the, what Jesus expects for the pastor is to know the word of God, right? Don't, don't stand before the people and not know what you're talking about. We're not to be Tony Robbins. We're to be teachers of the word of God. We're to be ministers of the kingdom. We're to be endued with power. We're to exert the power and we're to release the teaching and the, and, and the understanding of the scripture to the people. America, we value Tony Robbins, Jesus doesn't value Tony Robbins. He's not looking for a motivational speaker. He's looking for people that will teach his people, that will teach them the pure milk of the word, that will give them the meat of the word, that will feed them, encourage them, develop them in the scripture. And he expects him. Here you have a teacher of Israel coming to who? Jesus. And what is he holding him accountable to? Knowing the word of God. You are accountable. Don't tell me you're teaching these people and you don't know what I'm talking about. This seems really far removed from us. You know, we think, well, every pastor, do they? 
I just watched a guy, just watched, I shared this a couple weeks ago, I just watched this um, sort of panel meeting and had all these young pastors, you know, they're all up there, you know, and say, well, what do you mean? They dress like they're 14 and they're actually 40, so that's, that's what I mean, right? And they asked basic questions to these guys. They asked them, what is sin? They couldn't answer it. They're giving all these like semantical answers, what sin is. They're asking him, what is, what is regeneration, which means being born again, being regenerated, right? They couldn't answer it either. And I'm watching these guys, and there's like four of them, and none of them could give a straight answer. And they had a theologian at the end, a guy who was actually a Bible professor, and he was giving the answers. And he was explaining sin, and he was explaining this, but none of the people that were teaching that are teaching God's people could give answers on the most basic questions, things that we should know, that, that somebody that's standing in like where I'm standing should know. I'm, you're accountable. I'm accountable to, for this, right? I understand that, so I won't get into all that. But what I want to do emphasize is that God expects his teachers to know what they're talking about. Don't get up there and talk about your fairy cats and fishing with your grandpa. Teach the word of God, Right? Don't get up there and give me a rah, 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 you can do it message. Teach the word of God. I'm all about stories of fishing with my grandpa, and I'm all about rah, rah messages, but that is not the substance. That's, that's, that's the perimeter of what we bring. We're to bring, the, we're to bring that's like the dessert, right? We're to, bring a, we're to bring something that's a lot more meatier and a lot more weightier. Yeah, come on, somebody help me. I have a lot more to say on that. <laughs> Most assuredly, he says, are you teaching my people and you don't know this? This wasn't a new concept. Bible talks about Ezekiel, talks two, two times in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, um, Ezekiel 11, and then I think it's Jeremiah 16, where God talks about being born again in the Old Testament. Regeneration, a new heart, born of the Spirit. That he, he speaks it very plainly. Nicodemus would have understood this concept. He would have not known how it's going to work, which is why he's asking how can these things be? But this wasn't something new. He was supposed to understand this. God mentioned it, laid it out in the, New in the Old Testament. This guy's an Old Testament master. And then he starts talking to Jesus. Jesus starts talking to him. And he says, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify of what we see, but yet you still don't receive our witness. If I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe me, how in the world are you gonna grasp the concept if I give you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but the one who has come down from heaven, that is the Son of Man. Everybody say with me, Son of Man, right? Who is in heaven, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he's speaking Old Testament. All of these references are direct Old Testament references. All of these things that he's saying, son of man, serpent in the world, all of these things are, are, should be right in the language and right in the pocket of what Nicodemus should have known. And he says, for God, so, and he says, uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up, that he whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world, say it with me, he so loved. He, Jesus doesn't just love, the Father doesn't just love, he so loved. He ransoms everything for you. You're see, come on. You're sitting here as a product of God's soul love. He did for you and does for you what you cannot do for yourself. And this is the message of the gospel. Heaven came down because God so loved you. For no particular reason at all, he loves you. You understand that? You're loved. Who told you you're not loved? Who told you God's against you? God's for you, man. Everything else is a lie and smells like smoke. That comes from hell, man. That doesn't come from heaven. He loves you, and the love to you is the invitation to come back to him and to give your life to him, right? Love is what compels us and draws us back to him. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only monogonosh, the one of a kind. He sent the one of a kind. That's who Jesus is. He's the one of a kind, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but he sent him that the world through him, everybody say it, through Jesus, through Jesus. is salvation. salvation. Right. And says so that whoever believes in Christ is not condemned, but the one who does not believe is already condemned because they've not believed in the only begotten of the Father. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone practicing evil will not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. But the one who does the truth comes to the light that they may be seen that they have been born in God. 
right? So Jesus is at Passover. I just did the recap. And Nicodemus comes to inquire of Jesus, and Jesus answers these things to him. He says, truth, truth. Unless you're born again, nothing matters. Nothing matters. Nicodemus, the Jews at this time, had built a system based upon works. The system God gave them was never based upon works. It was based upon uh, faith. Everything God told them from the beginning was they were to put faith in it. And what the Jews had done is they had created a system that was based upon works. The priesthood at this time, Nicodemus is a priest, he's a Pharisee, so the priests had divisions within them. They had sects, different sections. They had the Pharisees and they had the Sadducees. They believed different things. And they were not, God prescribed his priesthood to be organized in a certain way. And because of the corruption that had come into the nation, the priesthood was corrupt. The high priest was to be a direct descendant of Aaron. At this time, Ananias and Caiaphas were not direct descendants of Aaron. The Romans had taken the high priesthood and they sold it to the highest bidder. Right? So they had illegitimate high priests. They had, the, they had, um, uh, they had uh, the Sadducees who didn't believe in certain things. And then you have the Pharisees. So there was a lot of sectarianism going on here. Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. And they believed only the first five books of Moses. The Pharisees, which is what Nicodemus is. So if you want to know who, where, Jesus, who Jesus, where the value is, he barely talked to the Sadducees because they were irrelevant. You don't believe in the supernatural. You don't believe in the kingdom. You don't believe in this. You guys are only limiting yourself to the five books of Moses. They were irrelevant. He spoke to them very, very little. He spoke to the Pharisees mostly because they were more adherents to the whole word of God, even though their theology or their understanding of the scripture was messed up. So Jesus is rebuking them and correcting them, rebuking them and correcting them, trying to take them away from their traditions and to focus on what is said. So when Jesus spoke to the, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, it was always, have you not read? 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 So if anybody thinks the Bible's not important or the Bible doesn't matter to Jesus, I mean, just look at what he said. You don't know this? Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? He's driving them back to the scripture and he's trying to get them to see scripture as he's explaining it to them. They saw scripture through their tradition. They saw scripture through their value system. They didn't see their script. They didn't look at scripture through the kingdom. You understand this? And so when Jesus is talking to them, and he's talking to the Sadducees, and he told them two things. He barely talked to them. But to me, the most powerful thing he ever said to the Sadducees, he said, you have a problem that's twofold. He said, number one, you're ignorant of the scripture. That was the first problem he told them. And then the second one is he said, you're ignorant of the power of God. And those were the two things that they denied. Yet they held leadership positions within, the, within uh, God's community. They were, they were, the, the Sadducees were the ones that were in power. They were the wealthy caste of the priests. They were the ones who were in cahoots with the Romans, right? The Pharisees were more of the zealots. They were the ones who had the Sicarios, which is the assassins. Yeah, you guys, you guys know the movie Sicario. Anybody know? Come on, there's some dudes in the room, right? Yeah, right? That's, a, that's actually a Hebrew word. That's not even a Spanish word. Sicario is a, is a Hebrew word, and they were the Hasidims, and they were, they were closely related to the Pharisees. They were so zealous, they'd kill anybody. <laughs> Paul was a Pharisee. And what was he doing? Killing Christians, right? When Paul converted to Christ, what happened? You have a bunch of guys taking a vow to kill Paul, right? Because they viewed the word of God and they would protect the word of God and they would protect their viewpoint at all costs. And so they saw it that way. So he comes and he, and he inquires and Jesus is trying to get this guy to see it differently. Um, all that was left, they had no power. The ark was gone. So all that was left with the priesthood was ritual and experience, Ritual and experience, ritual and experience, because they didn't understand power. They didn't understand the Holy Spirit. This is where the church is a lot of times, and you know, especially in America, we have ritual experience. We have, we, all we have is ritual, you know? That's all we have. We go back and forth. Ritual without experience is what we have. We come and go, but there's no encounter. We come and go, but there's no experience. When you come this morning, you're supposed to encounter the Lord, right? I mean, this is why we set this whole thing up. We set the worship up for you to encounter the Holy Spirit, you know? We set the prayer up for you to encounter the Holy Spirit, that you would come out of this place and you would know that you're loved. You would know that God is in this place, right? The teaching is for you to encounter God, for me to draw you towards him. We'll have prayer. We have a prayer team afterwards. If you need prayer, again, what's the prayer team for? For you to encounter the Lord, right? And so this is what it's all about. It's not about coming and going. It's not about having a ritual or a gathering without an experience component attached to it. It's necessary. And this is all they had. 
And so when you have, what ends up happening is when you have um, ritual or gathering without experience, your only thing that you're left with is legalism or liberality because you have nothing else. And so these guys had chosen, well, they had liberality, the, the, but they had chosen legalism. They created a system of rules, rules. Don't do this, don't do that, don't touch this, don't touch that, right? Instead of the experience with the Lord and letting the Holy Spirit be the guide through the moral consciousness upon the heart through the scripture, that was the idea. They, they were like religious and arrogant answer givers. They were in everybody's business. They were checking up on everybody, not because they cared, but because they were trying to hold everybody accountable. And so they were left with nothing but legalism. And in verse 12, when Jesus says to him, if I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't understand it, how will you understand if I speak of heavenly things? Nicodemus had come looking for heavenly knowledge. He had come realizing he'd spent his life re- uh, learning something, and what he had learned had produced no effect, no results. He had power, he had position, he had status, he had influence, he had everything he wanted, yet he had nothing. Yet he had nothing. He was the most pop, one of the most popular per- sought-after people. He was a sought-after speaker. You know, he, he had everything he wanted, but in his side, he knew he had nothing. And Jesus said, if you don't understand earthly things, how will you understand heavenly things? In other words, he's telling this guy, I can't make this any easier for you. I can't make it any simpler. And then he begins to tell him, we speak what we know and we speak of what we have seen and we testify. Jesus uses the plural plural noun here again. He's throwing it right in Nicodemus' face. We, we, we. You know what he's inviting Nicodemus to do? Ask me a question. Ask me a question. Ask me another question. But Nicodemus didn't ask any questions. When he, if he would have asked, well, who's the we? The Hebrews knew the plurality of God. They knew that God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They, didn't have, they, they understood that God was plural. This idea of Trinity doesn't come from the New Testament. It's layered through the Old Testament. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Adonai Elohim is one. Elohim is a plural word. He, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the, the Jews were to speak this. Hero Israel, Shema Israel, hear Israel, the Lord your God is one. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They would go through this thing and they would say it. How many times a day would they say the Shema? How many times, Jeremiah? Three. He didn't tell them to say the Shema, which is hero Israel. They said they had to say it three times. Why three? Because the, the, the Lord is emphasizing the triune or the three-part nature of, of what he is. Elohim is a plural word. All throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament. Again, Jesus is saying, we testify of what we have seen. We testify of what we understand. He's, he's throwing it right in his face. And so he's trying to get Nicodemus on page with what he's talking about so that Nicodemus would see him through the Old Testament, that Nicodemus would see him through the lens of understanding. This is how God relates to you. He relates to you by trying to get you to see through the understanding eyes that you have. He comes to where you are, right? He's trying to get you to understand. You see it with Thomas, you know, unless I put my hands in the nail holes and put my fingers in his side, I won't believe. Jesus shows up and says, hey, whatever it takes, bro. Put your fingers here, put your hand here. If that's your context and that's the lens for you to have faith, then let me give myself to you in that way that you might believe me. He's trying to get Nicodemus to see all of this. So the, the Jews in the Old Testament, the Hebrews, very, very clear. They knew Yahweh Most High. They knew they spoke these words, Yahweh Most High, Yahweh embodied in the spirit of Yahweh. They understood. All throughout the Old Testament, a man would appear who would be God, and he would be a man. Moses in the burning bush. We all think about the burning bush. Read the story. There's a man in the burning bush. There's a man standing in the burning bush. Well, who is he? Well, the Jews knew him as the son of man. They knew him as the God who embodied himself as man. They were familiar with this. And this is why Jesus is going, son of man, son of man, son of man, which is actually a direct quote of Daniel 7, you know, the Son of Man sits upon the throne. In other words, the Son of Man that you know is the Son of Man who's God most high. Again, he's speaking to them in language. You see, Joshua was getting ready to take care of Jericho, and someone appeared there, right? A man? Joshua calls him an angel. He's no ordinary angel. How do we know? Because he told Joshua, take your shoes off. Where you're standing is holy. When, when there's an angelic appearance, they only use this word angel in the context of this. It's called a theophany. Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. And how do we know it's Jesus? Because he accepts worship. 
How do we know it's an angel? The angels will not, would not receive worship, right? When uh, Elkanah was going to have Samuel and she wanted, they wanted to worship the angel, the angel's like, dude, don't worship me, right? If you know that story, and he stepped in, but he did, he did let, the, he did let, uh, let um, Elkanah and Hannah make an offering unto the Lord. And when he made the offering unto the Lord, I love this story. The angel stepped into the fire of the offering and ascended. How freaking cool is that, man? I'd be like, what? You know, the fire of the offering's going up, and the angel steps into the fire and ascends with the offering. That, that, that's just, I mean, that's epic. You know what I mean? There's another scene with an angel in the book of Revelation when God's winding down time. The angel takes a censer when judgment's about to come. God's not judging now, but he will. And when judgment's about to come, silence happens. Angel takes a censer with coals from the altar. And the Bible says he hurls it to the earth. And that's when the judgment begins. Is that nuts? I mean, who wouldn't want to see that? I mean, are you like, what? Put that on pay-per-view, you got my $29.95. That's all I got to say. Tonight, we're going to be showing for $29.95, the angel ascending in the offering and the angel hurling the, the censer to the earth. I'm like, I'm in. Honey, where's the credit card? Let's go. So they understood Yahweh most high. They understood the embodied Yahweh. And when Yahweh appeared, when, when the angel appeared to Abraham, right? You guys know the story in the book of Genesis when he's coming down to see what's going on. And Abraham sees him and he recognizes him. The Bible says over and over again that, that Yahweh appeared to Moses. Yahweh appeared to Abraham. It wasn't just a voice they heard. He personified. He came in person. He came as himself. This is Jesus in the Old Testament. Nicodemus, being an Old Testament master, he would have known this. And so when Jesus is winging these references out there to him, son of man, he's trying to invoke Nicodemus into understanding what he's saying. Jesus is trying to lead him out of his ignorance. He's trying to lead him past his perceptions. It says, no one has ascended into heaven, verse, what verse is that, 12, 13? No one has ascended into heaven except he who came down. That is the son of man who came down. He references son of man twice. You come for heavenly knowledge. You come to know from heaven. The only, one, the only knowledge, the, the one, if you want true knowledge, you must get the true knowledge from the one who came down. Every religion, this is literally an indictment on every religion in the world. Every religion believes that man must do something. Every religion is about you doing more so that you can go higher. The gospel is not about man's ability to go up, but it's about God's mercy coming down. That's the starting point. That's the entry point of the kingdom. It's not what you need to do. It's what he's done. He's come down. You say, well, what do I need to do? You need to believe. That's, that's the only thing. You believe and confess. That's what the Bible says. Believe in your heart. Doesn't mean you have to understand it. The gospel is not about understanding. To the sinner, this makes no sense. It's confusing. It doesn't make any sense, but to the heart, it resonates. This is how we get born again. Anybody with me, right? How'd you get born again? Did you calculate what Jesus did? No, it didn't make any sense to you. It just came in, but your heart knew that this was what you needed to do. And so then it's just believe. You have the belief in your heart, then confess Christ as Lord. That's the idea, and that's where the whole idea of the prayer comes from. It's not about man going up. It's about God coming down. And so Jesus came down. Buddhism is about keeping the eight laws or whatever it is. Islam is about keeping the sacred tenets of Islam. Um, you know, all of these religions are based upon man doing something. Hinduism is based upon karma, doing enough good so that you're reincarnated as a, in a better state and you keep reincarnating over a series of lifetimes until you reach nirvana. Well, how are you doing with that? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. With Jesus, you can know because you don't qualify you. He qualifies you. You understand? Come on. High five. Yeah. So he's good. So what happens here, he says, as Moses was lifted up as a serpent in the wilderness. This is important. He's, again, he's speaking to Nicodemus in, 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 in Old Testament language. He's like, it's like Moses being lit, lifting up the serpent in the Old Testament. So I must be lifted up that whoever believes in me would not perish but have everlasting life. So this, this thing he's referring to is in Numbers chapter 21, that God has just delivered these, he's delivered Israel. He's brought them out of, out of all kinds of slavery. He has provided for them. The Bible said he fed them with angels' food. They're eating manna. Now, I don't know what angels' food is. 
But if there's only one food that the angels are, it has to be good. So he gave them manna. And from this manna, it was like a substance that they could make all these different things from. This is what they believed nonetheless. But they were complaining. Oh, we're out here in the desert and we're hot. Oh, it was so comfortable. The chains of Egypt were better than this. At least we had leeks and onions in our pot and we weren't walking around out here all day. They were complaining against the Lord. They had forgotten what God had done. What the, what the language actually says is he, he, they cursed God in their heart. Biloa, I think, is the word. They had said, we curse God. We renounce God in our heart. And what happened when they made that, the, cur- the, 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 the serpents came in among them. That's exactly what Adam did. What they were doing is they're manifesting the curse of the garden, right? Adam cursed God in his heart, chose his own way and not the Lord's way. Serpent bit, right? So the serpents came in among the people, bit them. God's like, Moses is like, oh my gosh, what do I do, you know? What do I do? And Jesus, the Lord's like, take a bronze serpent, wrap it around a pole. This is literally a cross. He wove this serpent around the pole. He held it up, and he said, everybody look to this. And when they looked to it, they were whole. Well, what's the analogy? Man is born with a poison. You're born in sin. We're all born in sin, even the cute little baby. Yeah? That cute little adorable baby that you would never in the world. <laughs> I was sitting next to a baby on an airplane. The baby was like an angel. I thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a rough flight. My, my wife's looking over at me, and she's smiling. She's like, huh? Because there's a woman right next to me with a baby. That baby was so sweet. And he's, like, looking at me, and he's smiling the whole time. And he cried very, very little. But even that baby's born a sinner. It's true. <laughs> they prove it out. They get, like, two years old, and they're going to prove to you that they're a sinner. <laughs> they're determined. <laughs> That's mine. No, it's mine mine, bonking each other on the head, taking things out of each other's stuff, lying. Did you eat a cookie? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Who taught them to lie? You ever wonder that? Who taught that little two-year-old to lie? It's just in his nature or her nature, they just lie, right? We're born sinners. We're born with a poison in us that ultimately will kill us and will destroy us. And will not just destroy us, it will destroy us not throughout life, but it will destroy us eternally. And so the symbol of what brought the curse became the symbol of what brought the cure. This is an analogy that Jesus is telling Nicodemus. We're all born of Adam. Adam is the symbol of what brought the curse. Every single person in here, we all come from one source. The Bible doesn't say, I'm going to help you all out, right? Say this, the Bible doesn't teach races. It teaches ethnicities. Ethnicity simply means we're different. That's what ethnic means. The Bible teaches one race. One race. One ra- Say it with me. One race from one blood, right? We're all born of the blood of Adam. Yeah? And because we're born of the unborn of Adam, Adam is the symbol that brought the, cure, the, 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 the curse, He's the embodiment, and so Jesus becomes the symbol, the last Adam, who brings the cure. And he's speaking this parallel language to Nicodemus so that Nicodemus would understand it, but he wasn't grasping it. The shape of the wound would be the shape of the cure. Romans says this, so I'll give it to you. Romans says this, for what God could not do, for what the law could not do in that it was weak. The law can't save you. Works can't save you. That's what the Bible's saying. God did by sending his own son, what? In the likeness of sinful flesh. This is what he's saying. So Jesus became flesh so that he could take the curse on our part, deliver deliver the curse unto death, rise from the dead, take your death and deliver righteousness unto you and set you right. Yeah, hallelujah. Come on, good news all around here this morning, right? And so he did this, and, so, and then it says Romans 5, therefore sin entered through one man, right? So the symbol of the curse comes through Adam, right? Through sin. And death came to all because all of sin. So the poison of Adam, because Adam is in our blood, all of us have the DNA of Adam, so Adam is in our bloodstream, we carry with us something called iniquity. Iniquity is the transference of sin. That's what iniquity is. Jesus came for the iniquity this, this concept of sin has to be understood in the church too because we think, church, we think sin is smoking, drinking, and chewing, hanging out with those that are doing, listening to Jay-Z, going to clubs and doing all kinds of other things. That are, that, that, you know, that's what we think sin is. 
Well, that's a form of sin, but that's not the sin that condemns us. The sin that condemns us is the iniquity that's in us. This is why when you get born again, you ever notice you, you, you want a different lifestyle, but you still struggle sometimes with habits, hangups, and hurts because that, that has to be undone through a process of discipleship and sanctification. What is done is that the poison that's in you is gone. It's gone. You're born again. You're no longer under condemnation. You're under, you're under righteousness. You're no longer under darkness. You're under light. You may not look like it. You may not smell like it. You may not act like it, but the truth remains. You are. This is what salvation is. Amen. Yeah, come on. So, yeah, come on. The symbol of the curse became the symbol of the cure. This is the parallel that he's trying to get him to understand. And then it says, 1 Corinthians 15 says this, for in Adam all died. This is talking about the iniquity again. For in Adam all died. Therefore, in Christ all can be made alive. You see that? And there were people that were dying on the ground, snake bit, burning snake bite on them, dying of the poison in their veins, and they refused to look at the suffering symbol that Moses was holding up. They refused. Just like there are people in this world that you tell them, unless you're born again, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. All you got to do is give your heart to him, give your life to him, and you'll be saved. You'll come out of condemnation. They, won't, they, they refuse it. As, as crazy as that sounds, there are people in, in that time that were bit by those snakes that would rather die in the mud than lift up their eyes in faith. It's nuts. Just like there are people today that Jesus makes this so easy. He makes it so easy. Man concentrates on what they have to give up, not what they gain. It's true. It's true. Ephesians tells us this. What are we like without Christ? The Bible says you are without Christ. What does it mean? You are outside of the commonwealth of God's people. You are strangers to the covenants and his promises, and you had no hope in the world without God. He's reminding this church, know who you are and remember who you were. So the person that doesn't have Jesus, you all are under a commonwealth. Did you know that? This is what I talk about here all the time is the inheritance. It's the commonwealth of God's people. He has a commonwealth for all of his people. He has a happy day. He has a common inheritance for all of his people. Then he has promises and covenants. He has promises which relate to your destiny, which relate to your purpose, which relate to your mission, which relates to assignments, which relates to, a season, to, uh, to assignments within seasons. These are where the promises and the covenants come in. But the commonwealth is given to all. Every Christian has an inheritance. You ha- you, you, so say this with me. I'm going to help you out. So this is a thread. We're going to keep weaving these threads. Say this. Destiny, assignment, and mandates must be entered into, right? Inheritance needs to be activated. There's a difference. So your destiny is something you have to partner with. There are certain things that you have to do, just like a promise. So everybody here has a destiny and a purpose. Did you know that? If you didn't, let me help you. You're born on purpose with a purpose. Jesus don't make junk. When you come to Christ, you're now in a position to actually begin to actualize your purpose. Without Jesus, you don't stand a chance. You just don't. That's right, because you're created by him and for him. You can achieve a lot of things in your own strength, but you won't fulfill that purpose. When ultimately, you'll lose your, you'll lose your, you know, you'll lose your way without, you're lost forever without Christ. And so what he's saying here is that we all have a commonwealth, right? And so when you come to Christ, you have a commonwealth. Every Christian has an inheritance. What is my inheritance? I'm going to give you one that applies to all of us because we're Americans, and this is how we are, right? We're capitalists. Right? Money, we understand money very, very well in this culture. The, 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 the inheritance that God has placed upon the believers, Jehovah Jireh, which means what? Help me. Right? Your inheritance relates to his name. You understand that? So the commonwealth that we all share is the name of Jesus, which is salvation. When we come into Christ, we're given his name, Jesus, Jesus saves, and that the inheritance attached to that part of his name is we have eternal life. That's your inheritance. You have an inheritance. Everywhere his name is found is where your inheritance lies. He's Jehovah Rapha, means the Lord your healer. He's Jehovah Rohi. This is another one that's easy for you to understand. Jehovah Rohi means shepherd, means he will, he will lead you. Anybody ask the Lord for wisdom? And he, does he give it? Do you know why? Because wisdom is your inheritance. Why? Because you have the name of Jehovah Rohi on you. Your inheritance lies within his name. Jehovah Shema, which means his presence. All you got to do is worship, lift up your hands and say, Holy Spirit, come, and he comes. 
His presence is not far from you. You're outside of it. All you got to do is step into it or, or allow it to move. His presence is never taken from you because his name is Jehovah Shammah. He is with you always, even into the end of the age. Your inheritance when it comes to Jehovah Jireh, anybody been provided for? Didn't look like you were going to make it, but you made it. Woo! I mean, you barely made it, but you made it. You know what I'm saying? That, but that's your inheritance. Your inheritance is that you will not fail. He does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to Abraham's seed. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and you are an heir according to that promise. You're heirs. Without, without Christ, man is outside of that commonwealth. We as God's people share that commonwealth. We have a commonwealth of promises. We have a commonwealth of provision. We have a commonwealth that's related to this. But without Christ, they're strangers. There's no covenants. Oh, I could go. I should teach this verse, but I'm not going to. I got to keep going, right? Yeah, do it. Don't encourage me. Don't do it. Just say Do it. Oh, God. Come on. All right. Okay. You're going to tell me? All right. I'm going to try. I'm going to do a little bit. I'm going to try to do a little bit. <laughs> All right. Covenants. So what's this look like? You're in Christ. I'm going to help you. This is going to help some of you, man. You know, Jesus, how many knows that Jesus wants his people free? Do you know that? He wants you living on purpose. He wants you living on mission. He wants you to become more than what you're called, what you, what you believe you are, and more than what everybody else says you are. So we come to Christ, we get born again, we share in a commonwealth. The commonwealth basically means you cannot fail. Do you understand that, Christian? You can't fail. Say it with me. The only way I fail in Christ is if I quit. That is the only way you fail. Be not weary in your well-doing, for in due season you will, you will reap if you do not quit or if you faint not. The only, way you, the only way the Christian fails is when they quit. And that's the very thing the devil's trying to get him, you to do, isn't he? Isn't the devil always trying to get you to quit? Quit on your marriage. Quit on your life. Quit on Jesus. Quit on this. Quit doing that. Quit doing this. And it's not a healthy quit. It's a, it's a, it's a give up kind of quit. And so the commonwealth means you cannot fail. The covenants and the promises, God makes a covenant, right? He makes a promise to you. He puts a destiny over your life. He puts a dream in your heart. He puts a vision. Anybody ever seen God give you a vision? Anybody have something where you've asked God, what have you called me? He's shown you something about your future, hasn't he? Right? So that's a promise. He's put a promise in front of you. The question now becomes, what do I need to do, Lord, to begin to walk that path? So there's a, there's a journey that happens into the destiny. The other thing is covenants. All you business people out there, God makes covenants. Not just the new covenant, but he makes agreements. God likes to strike hands, Right? He likes, he's a, somebody, I, I shared this one time, and, a, and this business guy comes up to me, and he goes, I've never seen Jesus as a deal maker. I'm like, that's all he does is make deals. Come let us reason together. You'll make a covenant with him. Lord, I will, you know, it, I want to do this, and if you will do this in my life, then I will do this. This is outside of being saved. Do you understand this? I'm not talking about being saved. I'm talking about God, the, the Lord searches to and fro to find those whose hearts are truly his, that he might show himself strong. God is looking on the earth to find people who actually want him. You know, Lord, if you will bless this business, I'll give you 20%. I'll give you 20% of my income, and I'll give you 20% of the net gain on the business, and I'll do it quarterly. I won't even do it annually. I won't even do it semi-annually. I'll make a deal with you, Lord. Do you know Jesus will take, do you understand that? Do you know how many people I've seen in this church that make deals with God like that? They covenant, they strike hands with him, and you know what will happen? Say it with me. The Lord will be faithful. The question is, is will I? Oh, yeah, it got real quiet on that one. We're like, the Lord will be faithful. Woo! But the question is, is will you? Will you? And that's, that's another story for another day. But this is, this is what it's talking about. Commonwealth, covenants, which is a challenge for you to go higher. And it's talking about promises. And without Jesus, you don't have any of that. And you have no chance. And you have no hope in the world. Without hope. Without Jesus, you have no hope. Jesus is hope. He is full of hope, and the Bible actually tells us that Jesus Christ is hope. He's hope. Say, I don't have a chance. I'm always like, are you breathing? Right? That's right. His hand is extended in your direction. When people give up on you, it's the story of the paralytic. When the boy, the boy that fell into the fire, everybody had given up on him. He's dead. They all said, Jesus like, he ain't dead. He stretched his hand. You're not dead until Jesus says so. 
right? It's over. Oh, it's over. Did Jesus say it's over? Then it's not over. It may feel like it's over. It might look like it's over. You might believe it's over, but it's only over when Jesus says it's over. And the question becomes, who will you listen to? Whose voice? Just having this conversation before service. Jesus wants you to hear and listen and obey his voice above all others. Yeah? What do you say about this matter, Lord? Live and not die. Succeed and not fail. But it looks like it's failing. Did I, Lord, is it going to fail? No, it's not going to fail. This is, you know, again, I'm going, I'm getting way out there on this, but yeah, don't, don't stop encouraging me. So the concept of faith, not that I don't need the encouragement, I like the encouragement. So the concept of faith was new to him. Jesus said, whosoever believes in him, this is an important thing. So Jesus comes back to Nicodemus and he uses this word, whosoever. This again would have blown Nicodemus's perspective out of the water, but it would have been perfect keeping with the, with, with, with the Old Testament. God's desire was to reach the nations. The Jews had created an exclusive club of who could be saved and who couldn't be saved. This is because it was corrupt. They had completely corrupted the system. It was not the system that God gave their forefathers. This generation, this generation here, had corrupted it entirely. And they believed that unless you were a blue blood born again or a blue blood blood born Jew, you were not going to be saved. And that God hated the nations. This wasn't ever what the Bible taught, but this is how they saw it. And so when Jesus is saying whosoever, they're, they're probably like, what do you mean whosoever? What do you mean whosoever? That's why he tells the story. You ever wonder why he tells the story of the Samaritan, right? The good Samaritan, the good Samaritan, the one you all hate. The priest walked by him, the Levite walked by him, but the Samaritan helped him because he's speaking right at him. They had a belief system that was not congruent with the kingdom. He said, so whosoever, this concept was nothing new to him. Uh, you know, and neither was the concept of faith new to them. Abraham was justified by faith. Anybody know that? The Bible says Abraham believed God and it was given to him as righteousness. Abraham is called the father of faith. So faith didn't come by anything Abraham did. Abraham believed and trusted God at his word and was willing to commit to what God said, right? Faith in action. And when Abraham believed and committed, the Lord justified him and said he's righteous, so the concept of righteousness was never by works. When the Jews came out of Israel or came out of Egypt, they had to put blood on the doorpost and they had to put faith in the blood. That's how they, that's how they were released. They weren't released by some grand thing or some earning. They didn't earn it. They had to believe what God said, take the lamb, put the blood on the thing, roast it like this, do this and do this. They had to believe what God said, take action upon it, and then they had to trust that what God said was true. There were, there were Israelites that didn't do it and they died right? Or their firstborn did anyway. You can rest assured there were Israelites that didn't do it. And there were not, the Bible says a mixed multitude. There was a mixed multitude. There were probably Egyptians that saw the Hebrews doing this and said, what are you doing? And the Hebrews would tell them, this is what we're doing. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to do that too. And they did it. And God accepted that as an act of faith. Because when they left Egypt, the Bible says they weren't all Hebrews that left Egypt. They were a mixed multitude. So there was a lot of Egyptians that came along for the ride right? We're going to party with the God of heaven. You know what I mean? He's way better than what we're dealing with. Man, your God's cool. We're going to go that way. And so whosoever, God, is, from their perspective, God was exclusive. Jesus just told them, I'm not exclusive, I'm inclusive. It's true. That was a whole thing we were looking at in, um, uh, hold on, I just lost my place. Where am I? Oh, here we go. It was a whole thing we were looking at in the earlier part of the chapter, how, how, the, how the Hebrews, the Jews had segregated the temple. They had this place for the blue-blooded blue Jews. The women stay out here, and the, and the Gentiles, the goyim, you go over here. None of that's in the Bible. Segregation was never in the Bible. He actually tells them in Deuteronomy, one law for you and the stranger. So when the stranger comes, you're not giving them a separate set of rules or a separate worship experience or a separate set of steps. When they come and they're coming seeking me, they do the same thing you do. They can come to the same place you go. They can, do, they can access me, but they didn't like that. They didn't like that. They didn't like that sense of equality. That's why the Bible says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. He raises the status and equality of all through the cross. So none of this was new to him, but it was blowing his mind. It was, what it was blowing, it was, it was blowing out his system. Everything he thought was true was now realizing it's a lie. It was a radical shift, and Nicodemus couldn't handle it at the time, which is what the Lord said. 
I'm speaking truth to you, but you can't receive it. I'm speaking knowledge to you, but you can't receive it. And then Nicodemus would have this perspective. Well, why would God do that? Why would God do that? They thought that the Messiah was going to come and justify them and judge the nations. That's how they saw it. (laughs) But when the Messiah comes, he will justify us and he will judge the nations. And that's exactly what they were looking for. And that's why they got offended at him because he didn't pay any homage to them. He didn't honor them at all. He virtually ignored them. And the reason that he ignored them was because their system was entirely wrong. It was all broken. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't go, oh, great, Ananias, high priest of the Most High God, how are you? He didn't do any of that. And so they, 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 he, he didn't fit their worldview. Jesus doesn't fit a lot of times our worldview. Say this with me. I am not called to fit Jesus into my worldview. I am called to fit my worldview into Jesus. You have to, re- your, your worldview has to shift. Your worldview has to change. That's the idea. And so man is already, so here's what Jesus tells them. So God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. He says, for God so loved. Why would God do this? Because he loves. This is a concept Nicodemus didn't understand. He thought, Nick, well, God loves Israel, but God hates everybody else. That's how they thought. That gave them their justification to be isolationists. Us four no more lock the door. We're the holy and righteous ones. We're the true church. <laughs> Had a lady here one time tell me. She comes up to me. She's like, you need to bring, because her husband came here, but she went to another church. Don't ask me why. But she met me at the door, and she said, you need to have my pastor come here and preach the, preach the true gospel. And I said, oh, the true gospel. And I said, and what would that be? And uh, she said, there's sin in all of these people's lives. I said, yeah. I said, I'm sure you're right. And I said, but let's talk about you. And I started talking to her because I knew her husband well. And I said, um, you've been a Christian for your whole life? She's like, yeah. I said, were you, living with, were you living with your boyfriend before you got married? She went. I said, was there sin in your life? I said, were you justified? You know, that sin didn't disqualify you. It didn't disqualify you from, from God's love. It disqualifies you from his inheritance, or not his inheritance, but destiny. You're not gonna move in your destiny with that hanging over you but you're still loved of God. And I'm, not, I'm certainly not justifying people living together. I'm not saying that. However, that is not a sin that condemns. You know? But she's looking at me and telling me, oh, we're the true church. We're the righteous church. We're this, we're that. And I'm like, there is no such thing. There is no such thing. We're a bunch of broken people who love Jesus, who are called to follow him. And as we go, we work out these issues in our life. We bring our lives into him Right? We don't take Jesus and put him on what we think. We take what we think and we change it into what he says. That's how the game is played. Come on. Yeah. Just, so none of this stuff was new to him. Just was a radical shift. And he's like, how can this be? Because God loves. So you're missing an active component here. God's love. God wills the highest good. Anybody want their, if you see your kids suffering, would you not help them? It's almost impossible to not help your child if they're suffering. Even if you're looking at them and going, yeah, they made their bed, they deserve it, and then you're like, well, I still got to help them. You know what I mean? Is there anybody here? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. We, 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 we help them anyway. Even when we look at them and go, they don't deserve my help. They don't deserve my help. Okay, I'm going to help them. <laughs> this is how the Lord is. He looks at us. We put ourselves in this position, but his heart for us is not that we should be lost his heart for us is to provide us with a way for us to come back to him. His, his desire is for, when it, means, when it speaks of love, it means the highest good. Our highest good is to not live selfish, arrogant lives. Our highest good is to come out of our sin, out of our darkness, receive Jesus, which is life eternal, zoe, and then to live in and with and to and through the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus. This is our, this is, you want to talk about your best life now? That's your best life now, right? So this, that's what we're called to do. We're called to do that. And because God knows that for you to know him, for you to be in him, for you to have access to you is the greatest, is the greatest good you could ever have. There's, no, there's nothing greater. And so God's not calling you to himself to enslave you. He's calling to himself so that he can free you. He can give you access to wisdom, purpose, power, provision that you don't have any other way. And it's all found in that relationship to him. 
And so when God's saying he loves us, it's because he does, he's not empathy. He's looking at you and he's saying, I desire your highest good. And your highest good is to know me. In him we, move, we live, move, and have our being. Man is already condemned. This is important to know. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. That's why he's called Savior. He's Savior because we need to be saved from something. And what are we saved from? We're saved from the condemnation that we're all born under. You say, that's not fair. It doesn't matter if it's fair. It's truth. Say, that doesn't match my worldview. You need to get out of your worldview and accept the truth. This is what Nick, he kept telling Nicodemus. Truth, truth, I'm saying to you, Nicodemus. Truth, truth, I'm telling to you. If you've never heard truth before, hear it now. That's what he's saying. I'm telling you, this is the way. I'm telling you, there is no other way. I am God come down. I am the son of man. Heaven has come down and the son of man is here and I'm speaking truth to you. Your system is a lie. Your belief system is a lie. The way you perceive and conceive things is a lie. The way people perceive and conceive God is a lie. Any God, without Christ, any, any God that's not Jesus is a lie. He's an idol. There's no salvation in anything else. If salvation is in Christ alone. And he tells them, man, if you don't believe, you're already, you're already condemned. You're already under condemnation. Say this with me. Okay, this is important. Jesus doesn't judge man. Not yet. He judges sin. So here's the deal. This is what it looks like. When Adam fell, God never judged Adam. You Go back and read it. The judgment never came upon Adam. The judgment came upon Adam's sin. And because Adam was under sin, therefore he's under j- j- judgment. You understand? Sin is judged. Willful rebellion, the disowning of God, the cursing of God in the heart is judged. And so long as man remains under that, he remains under judgment. When man decides that they no longer, that when they see the opportunity, they come out from under judgment, and we don't come under Christ, we come into him. So the idea, the concept, the way the scripture works is that we're under sin, and when we come out, when we come out of sin, we come into Jesus. We become part of him, and he becomes part of us. That's the way it works. And so God's not judging man per se. At the end, he will judge, but he will judge man based upon the state of his condemnation. If man is under sin, then that sin and the condemnation in which he is under bears that judgment. But because you're in Christ, when you pass through the veil and you enter into life eternal, you go to, you go, you go to a whole other arena. Am I making sense here? Right? Right? So we're already born in sin, but we're born under sin is more the issue. Iniquity is in us, but we're under the condemnation is over that iniquity. And we come out of that and we come into Jesus. Man's already condemned. And here's a question. I'm going to spend a couple minutes on this and I'm going to close, right? Just a couple minutes. Anybody ever said, well, what about those people who've never heard of Jesus? You ever have anybody say that to you? Right? You ever have that question in your heart too? Right? Most people that, are, that do that are the skeptics. You know, you're out witnessing somebody and you're like, well, what about those people? What about those pygmies out there in the Amazon that never heard of Jesus? I'm like, wow, you seem to have a lot of compassion in your heart, man. I usually say something like that. You should come to Jesus and go and reach those people that have never heard of Jesus because they're trying to deflect off of themselves, right? The Bible has an answer for that. It says, you, he's speaking to Jews at the time, he says, you having the law but don't practice the law think that you're justified. In other words, you having knowledge but do nothing with the knowledge, you think that justifies you. It doesn't justify you. He talks about Gentiles or those who are outside of the law, those who do not have the law, but by nature do the things within the law. These things, not have, those not having the law become a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written upon their hearts and their conscience, their conscience bearing witness between themselves. So the idea is that God will judge them based upon the law of their conscience, those who've never heard. But you know how many people have never heard? A fraction of humanity in 21st century has never heard. A fraction. Western America or Western, Western world, United States, Caribbean island, South America, no excuse. No excuse. No one will have that justification because the gospel's been preached. And what God will hold them accountable to is he's like, you've got the gospel on the airway, but you never listened in. You've got the gospel on your television set, but you never listened in. You've got the gospel on your, on your iPhone, but you never tuned in. You've got a church on every corner, but you never even took the time to look into the claims that I made. There's no excuse. No excuse. 
If there's oil in your backyard, what would you do? If you, you know, what would you do? If you, saw, if you saw like oil bubbling up out of the ground, what would you do? Right? You, you'd drill, or at the very least, you'd get somebody to come over there and explore whether there was more riches under there than what you, what's coming up out of the ground. This is the, way, this is the way it is with Jesus, right? There's a treasure, there's a seed, there's a pearl that's presented before mankind. And mankind's responsibility is to pursue that to see if there's treasure beyond the, 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 the pearl. Exactly. They're called to seek it. And so God reveals it to them in a very infant or small form, that gospel, and he draws you to it. And, he, and you are called to respond to it. The people that don't know Jesus, the Bible tells us he's going to judge them by the law of the conscience. I don't know anybody that doesn't know Jesus. I don't know anybody in the Western world that hasn't heard the gospel. Yeah? They might have heard of Jesus, but they've done nothing with it. They're still without excuse. Those people will not be justified. United States of America will not be justified. You will not be justified. There's no one in this country that can claim ignorance. No one. I don't care if you live in an enclave, an immigrant enclave in the middle of nowhere. America's still all around you, and the gospel is preached here. It's preached here. I don't care if the church is as dead as a door now. There's still the claim is there. So there, there's no excuse. God, no one's going to come. No one, that, no, one in, no one in my country, no one in the Western, Western world is going to come and go, we didn't know. No one ever told me. Your neighbor tried to tell you, and you just called him a crazy fanatic right? The lady on the street tried to give you a tract or tried to give you an invite, and you threw it in the trash every single time. Roll tape, Gabriel, and he's going to roll the video. And he's going to show you. Walking by a church, right? Easter Sunday, oh, somebody invited you to come to Easter service. Ah, nah, I'm going to get drunk. <laughs> Without excuse. And this is the condemnation that light comes into the world, and they choose darkness. Why do people choose darkness? You want to know why? Say it with me. Ignorance and arrogance. Mm -hmm. They either don't know or they're arrogant and say no. Why would they say no? Because, they, number one, they believe they can do it without him. Man believes he's self-sufficient. You're far from it. You are not called to be self-sufficient. God created man as a community. He created you to be codependent. Do you know why codependency affects the human race at such a deep level? Because we're created to be codependent. But we're not created to be codependent on cocaine or marijuana or other people. We're created to be codependent upon Jesus. He's our Jones, right? As the deer pants for the water. That sounds like Jones, right? You're drawing. We're created to be codependent and to yearn for him. And we're created to be interdependent with one another. So we're codependent upon him and interdependent upon another. But yet man thinks they can do it alone. It's not true. We look at what we lose instead of what we gain. Yeah? What am I going to lose? Oh, I'm going to lose my party lifestyle, man. I'm going to lose all this. I'm going to lose all that. You know, I might, I might lose my street cred. I mean, I don't know. People look at what they lose over what they gain. And here's an even deeper one. They're unwilling to let go of the familiar. I have a saying when I do inner healing and deliverance is that crazy is normal. People perceive their crazy as normal. And man will not leave the familiar. We embrace and hold the familiar, unwilling to let go of the familiar, what we've always known because we fear the future and we fear the unknown. And in Christ, there's, that, that life is unknown. Well, this is crazy, but at least I know it, you know? And with Jesus, well, I don't know what, I don't know. Am I going to become some crazy person? Am I going to become, oh, what's going to happen to me? You know, so we start playing that stupid game. But this is why people do come to Jesus. That's why the gospel is the poor in spirit. Yeah? You are great. You are, you are the chosen ones of God. Why are you chosen? Because he called you and you listened. Therefore, he chooses you. He chooses you. That's what the whole idea of chosen means. I was like going, I like you, but I don't like you. Uh, too tall, too short. No, no, you're too ugly. I don't like that. I don't like any of that over there. He's not sitting here picking and choosing. Man, he invites all of us. All are, all are told and invited to come. And when you come and give your life to Christ, he chooses you. And what that choice means is it's an open declaration. My daughter, my son, he chooses you. I choose you. You are now my son. I choose you. You are now my daughter. Full rights of inheritance, day one. There's no excuse. What's your excuse, right? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're watching and you don't know you, Jesus, today is your day.
Not tomorrow, not next week, not I'll think about it. This is the offer you don't refuse. You don't refuse it. The king is making an offer to you. The Lord of glory is offering you something that you cannot do on your own. He's giving you an opportunity to come out of where you are and come unto what you're called to be, to be forgiven, to be restored, to be cleansed of the guilt, the shame, the iniquity, and to receive the potential for the future of hope. This is what he's calling you to do. We're all born in the iniquity of Adam. It's a sin problem. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the, 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 the evidence that we have that iniquity in us is because we've sinned. Everyone's lied. We've all stolen. We've all done something. You say, well, that shouldn't send me to hell. Well, no, you're already born going to hell. You need to come out of that and into Christ. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead, you'll be saved. This is the transaction. Jesus paid the price, and he's telling you how to cash the check, right? He's offering it to you. Here, this is, this is what I've done. I'm giving you an opportunity to take part in this and to receive this from me, and here's how you do it. You believe in your heart. You confess with your mouth. It's a prayer away. It's a prayer away. It's a 40-second prayer that changes eternity. So we're going to pray together here as a family, right, because we're all called. We're going to come together as one, and we're going to encourage you at home. If you don't know Jesus and you want to pray along with us, to pray along. If you don't know Jesus, I'm compelling you. I compel you. I adjure you. Give your life to Christ. And so we're going to pray together, and let's just pray. Just say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior, and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. So I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I allow you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me, to restore me, to heal me, and to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Say that's it? Yeah, come on. <laughs> right. No, that's the start of it. So hit us up if you did. If you prayed that prayer, we're going to bless you. If you're here today and you need prayer, this, this team over here is equipped and ready to pray for you. Let me bless you one more time. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you. And may he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. Amen.